0: Welcome to Unite Immigrant Families. I'm Rosemary Vega, an immigration attorney with over 20 years of experience uniting and keeping families together. If you are looking for immigration information, stick around and listen to me and my fellow immigration attorneys as we discuss what's new and debunk myths. Please note, this is not legal advice and no legal advice will be given on this podcast. Everyone, today we have another excellent attorney, Maristela Isaguire from Brownsville, Texas, and we will be talking about family-based adjustment of status. Hi Maristela, how are you today?
1: Hi, Rosemary. Great. And you how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. So how are things in Brownsville? Things are great. It's a beautiful day right now. It's a nice weather. So we're happy here.
0: Awesome. Here too. It's nice. So, today we're going to talk about adjustment of status. And I also want to thank you, before I forget, I want to thank you, thank you, thank you for being with us today. Um, it's a great honor to have you. Thank you so
1: much for having me, Rosemary. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Great. So, today we're going to talk about adjustment of status. Can you briefly, I guess, summarize what? What is adjustment of
1: status? So, adjustment of status is is um, when somebody comes into my office and, and asks me if um, that they want to become legal permanent residents. So, um, so what we do is um, when when somebody wants to become a legal permanent resident, we adjust their status to a legal permanent resident. Um, and usually, I mean, right now it's family based um, that we're talking. So, it is um, through a family member. And um, um, I believe that we're going to talk first about the U.S. citizen family members. Is that correct, Rosemary? You want to?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So real quick, before we jump into uh, U.S. citizen-based uh, adjustment of status, there is a difference between adjustment of status and consular processing, correct?
1: Correct. Yes, whenever you have, whenever um, we do adjustment of status, So, one of the first uh, questions that I ask a client is, um, how did you enter the United States? And because whenever we're trying to determine if there is going to be an adjustment of status or consular processing, we have to determine a couple of things. Because an adjustment of status, you uh, apply through the United States and you send in your application to USCIS, um, versus the difference is a consular processing. Is that you, yes, you start the process, you can start the process through USCIS, but eventually you will have your appointment at a U.S. consulate in your home country.
0: Yeah, that's a big difference, right? Bert, uh, doing everything in the United States, you don't have to leave the U.S. versus, you know, if you're here in the U.S. having to leave the U.S. and consular process in home country, that's, that could be scary.
1: It'd be scary, and we have um, there's yeah. there's some issues that you always have to consider when you're leaving the country.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like we talked about, we are going to do family. We're talking about family-based adjustment of status. Um, and I wanted to concentrate first on, let's say, people who are married to U.S. citizens. And what's the first step in that process?
1: So the first step, um, and one of the most important is, uh, like we talked about, whether whether we are going to do an adjustment or consular process. So once we determine that, you know how the person entered, if the person entered legally, or if there was um, ever a petition before April thirtieth, 2001, uh, we need to analyze those, those two situations. Um, if the person entered legally, then we're able to adjust status here in the United States. So um, with an adjustment of status, we always, when, the, when there is an adjustment here in the United States, we always do an I-130, which is a family petition. Um, and that we do it in conjunction with an I-45, with, which is an adjustment of status. And of course, it, we right. include other applications like work permit and travel document. But the first step um, is, is um, the, the family petition. Of course, in conjunction
0: with the I-45. Yeah, and you know, I have a I have a question for you because you know you always hear these myths, right? Of you know, and I've heard this myth before um, that if you marry a U.S. citizen, you automatically become a U.S. citizen, or if you have a U.S. child in the a child in the United States, you automatically become a U.S. citizen. Can you tell us whether any of that is? even a little bit true.
1: Okay, so let's talk about first. The, the <laughs> first one is if you marry a United States citizen, you're automatically a U.S. citizen. No, um, that is not the case. And actually, we have a lot of situations here. I, I live in the border. I live in Brownsville. And we have a lot of situations where people think that they just marry a U.S. citizen and they cross the border, they tell the officer, I'm already married to a U.S. citizen, so I'm coming in. <laughs> um and that's <laughs> not the case. Uh, there is definitely yeah. a process and there is a petition process that you have to undergo in order to become a legal permanent resident. Uh, and that is the first step uh, for the person that marries a U.S. citizen. So the U.S. citizen petitions for the legal permanent res for the person or his wife or um, to become a legal permanent resident. You don't become a citizen
0: automatically. Uh, right. So that that's like that's like such an a false myth right and so everybody who as you mentioned earlier everyone who is wants to try to adjust their status in the united states if they're married to a us citizen they have to file this i130 right
1: yes definitely you have to have you fa- have to file the i130 the family petition because you have to establish that relationship between a husband and a wife Um, And that is essential. Yeah.
0: And, okay, so you're establishing that relationship between husband and wife. So you've got to, basically, you've got to prove up this marriage to USCIS. You've got to show USCIS that it's not a a sham marriage, right?
1: Yes, that's one of the really important um, aspects of the case is that Um, Obviously, as an attorney, we uh, we always make sure I meet with my clients. I I uh, make sure that it is that it is a a valid marriage and that that uh, you can tell that that's something and you ask them questions. And then one of the things that I always tell uh, my clients or recommend is that you have to start um, making sure that you have evidence that the marriage is bona fide, that the marriage is a valid marriage. And uh, you have to just make sure that you have documentation like uh, insurance, um, insurances like in your car or medical insurance together or life insurance. If you're living together, you have to have evidence that you are living together, bills. Um, And of course, if you have children, that's always amazing. You don't have children. That's okay. Uh, You just... um, Prove uh, otherwise that you are together and that it is a valid bona fide marriage.
0: Yeah, so it's more than just submitting the marriage certificate and your birth certificates,
1: right? Yes. So um, one of the things that we do down here in Harlingen, I mean, every every area is different, but one of the things that we do is that we, whenever we go to the interview, that's when we submit all the evidence to the officer. Um, so we take. Uh, all of the the marriage pictures and the pictures when they were dating and all of the evidence that they have um, up to now that they are living together, that it is bona fide. And of course, every officer is different and every officer asks them different questions um, as to, to determine if, if it is a valid bona fide marriage.
0: Yeah. You know, you know, Maricela, these cases are some of my favorite cases because I love to see pictures of, you know, their wedding and the kids and their family. And then I ask them questions about, mm-hmm. oh, when was this taken? Tell me the story behind this. And so it gives them the opportunity to to retell that memory, right? Mm-hmm. And they, you, I feel like you get to see a sense of their marriage or their life. And so it's always nice to see that.
1: I agree. I they're my they're my favorite, too. And I, I love it when they come back and they already either have kids or they they come back when they naturalize and, and um, they show me more pictures. And um, I just I just had a, a couple who has been married um, like 27 years. And wow. I saw what I saw the pictures when they were dating. They were 15 years old and 16 years old. And the oh my the progression of the pictures were amazing. I loved it. And then when we showed up to the officer, it was really funny because I told the officer, "Officer, I have all these bona fides for you." And and she goes, "Oh no, no, they've been married for twenty seven years. I I I don't need them." Um, and I <laughs> and so so I said, "But can I at least show you when they were like fifteen or sixteen and dating? They are like the cutest." <laughs> and she's like, "Yes, please let me see them." <laughs>
0: how funny i just love those you know and so that's you know and we're talking about the i-130 portion here but that's just one part of it
1: right yes correct that is just one part of it and then
0: and i don't know for me i like seeing all the pictures and whatnot and and getting all of their that's that's fun to me but anyways so then what's the second part to, to this process?
1: The second part is the I 45, which is the adjustment of status. Um, so, those, um, those two, I always um, tell my clients that they go hand in hand. They, one needs the other um, to be able to get residency. So, the I 130 is to prove up the relationship, and then the adjustment of status is the per- so the person can just status to our residency. So um, that is also, that's the application where you're also able to submit a work permit and a travel document if they qualify in conjunction with the I-45. And also if um, you have to do an I-64, which is an affidavit of support to make sure that that they would qualify under the poverty guidelines.
0: Right. And the I-45, they also have to show that they are eligible to enter the United States or be admitted to the United States legally.
1: Right. Correct? That, that is essential also. That is one of the, um, the main aspects of, of talking to a client and asking the client, um, are you like we, of course, we don't say, are you admissible? But in our minds, when we're asking these questions, we're making sure that the person is admissible. Um, And one of the things that I always tell them is I have to ask you if you, for example, were arrested or committed a crime um, or or um, did were you ever convicted of an offense? And those are the kind of things that we also we always have to ask the client um, in the initial interview to make sure the client would be admissible. Um, Another great way is obviously when you're asking the questions in the I-485 application, it is very important to personally ask those questions because a lot, all those questions are determining whether the person will be admissible or not.
0: Yeah. And, you know. The way they entered the United States is super important. The way they initially entered, right? So you mentioned earlier if they had a legal entry to the United States. That's yes. kind of a way that you determine whether they can, they can adjust their status, right?
1: Yes, yeah, definitely. What that if, is yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah. What if they have a crime, though?
1: Well, if they have a crime, we need to um, see what kind of crime. And uh, when was it um, committed? What happened with that? What was the, the judgment? If the person was just arrested and the crime was dismissed, um, or, or, the I mean, I'm saying crime, but if, if there was an indictment and then the indictment was just dismissed, or at what stage did they, did they reach, at what level? So there's a lot of things that we have to analyze where there was a number one, an arrest. And and uh, if there was a crime committed and if there was a judgment and conviction. So all of those things, we definitely have to really analyze them, because that would be one of those areas where it would for sure mean that if a person did commit. um what is considered a, a an inadmissible offense? Then that person would not be admissible, and they would not be able to exist.
0: Yeah, and you know, you know, Maricela, what I have seen is um, some people don't understand that for immigration purposes, their arrest or their conviction actually counts for immigration purposes because, you know, maybe, yes, they were arrested, but um, their criminal attorney said, okay, it's, you know, you got deferred adjudication or you got pretrial diversion and you, you don't, you know, you're fine. This doesn't count against you. Um, Does that really, does that, is that true? Um,
1: for immigration, no, that's not true. For immigration, um, for immigration, um, I, first of all, I yeah, I'll, I'll talk about the the deferred adjudication and even the pretrial. But I would also like to talk of even a simple arrest can affect you. So, um, so, yeah. so those. So, for example, deferred adjudication, it's still a conviction for immigration purposes. Um also pretrial diversion. We always have to make sure that with pretrial diversion, how was it done? Did the person um was there um an actual uh, admission of guilt in front of a judge? What happened with that pretrial diversion? So um at at any moment with anybody anybody tells me um I've been arrested or I have been convicted before we even submit any I-485, we always, uh, I always uh, need to see all of the documents and all of the documents, including um, any sort of um, arrest. But if there is a judgment, if there's an indictment, anything like that, um, because it really depends uh, what happened in that process, and we can make sure that um, we do not affect our clients and by doing something where it could hurt them more than it can, it can uh, um, be beneficial to them.
0: And so what about a simple arrest? You had mentioned simple arrest could affect uh, the case as well.
1: So a simple arrest can can affect um, admissibility. So it is um, very important to definitely contact a lawyer, ask about that arrest, whether that arrest is some is is a, can be an, an issue and can be considered an uh, inadmissible. Um, even even with uh, an arrest, we always have to be very careful. And if there was an actual dismissal. Um, or if, or how did the case proceed, um, in, if there was no dismissal, then what happened to that, uh, um, that situation in that, um, arrest and how did it proceed further in the criminal court?
0: Yeah. So they definitely need to seek out an attorney if they are, if they have had any issues with any kind of law enforcement. Definitely. That
1: is very important.
0: Yeah. So, what about if someone had maybe given a little white lie or misrepresented something? Maybe something super minor at you know in the past could that affect them?
1: Yes, I. Um, that is one of the areas where um, uh, can be considered fraud. Um, let me give you an example. If somebody went to the U.S. consulate to renew their border crossing card and they have a a U.S. citizen child and they had a U.S. citizen child and um, they were living in Mexico, but they did have a U.S. citizen child. So when uh, the officer asked or they were filling out the form, they did not put in there that they had a U.S. citizen child. Or when the officer asks if they had any family members that are U.S. citizens or legal permanent residents, and they said no. That uh, can be considered a misrepresentation to an officer. So one of yeah. the things that we always, um, I always ask is, um, were you always truthful at a U.S. consulate or were you always truthful when you, you were crossing the border, when you were uh, obtaining um, a permission to enter? Because um, the immigration officers can go back and look at this and they can uh, consider it a uh, willful misrepresentation of a material fact and say that the person committed
0: Yeah. So that's a big one. That's a big one. What about, and you know, I've seen this in the past. What about someone claiming to be a U.S. citizen?
1: Oh, that is so tough. When somebody has claimed to be a U.S. citizen and it's been after the cutoff date, um, Rosemary, it's 1996, I believe, correct? Yes. October? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So if it was after October 1996, then unfortunately, they are barred permanently for life. Even if you are an immediate relative and you're married to a United, United States citizen, it is really, really sad. Um, and it yeah. is in, very important that um, you tell the attorney you seek help before you petition in any way if you do have a false claim in any shape or form. Even if you think that um, nothing happened at the port of entry or in any other place that you might've said you're a US citizen, it is really important um, that you you consider that um, to be something that can affect your adjustment of status. Now, even if it was before October, 1996, um, It is important to seek, um, the help of an attorney so that, so they can help you also navigate and go through this process. So the immigrate, so the immigration officer can also understand that it was before then. And then there was something you can do about it.
0: Right, right, right. So that is so very important. And so I wanted to go back to, um, You know this myth of if you have a U.S. citizen child, you automatically become a U.S. citizen. Um, Let's talk about that one for a little bit.
1: Yes, so um, so if you're a U.S. citizen and you have a child in in another country, they don't automatically become a United States citizen. It is very important that um, the person is aware that they need to go to the U.S. consulate and do the proper, through the proper avenues and petition for that child, depending on on if they are eligible as a derivative to be able to apply as a derivative citizen in the consulate. Um, If they're able to do that, then you do have to go through that process. Um, They are not automatically, you can't just show up at a port of entry and say, my child is a U.S. citizen because I'm a U.S. citizen. Um, yeah, you have to go through the process.
0: What about what about if you're not a U.S. citizen living in the United States and you have a U.S. citizen child? You have, you know, you give birth in the United States to a child.
1: That child is automatically
0: a United States citizen because they were born Yeah, but US. does that does that does that person derive citizenship from their children because they had children here in the United States? Oh the no, mom. does
1: the parent? Get, yes. No, no. No, yes. It's only, you only, deri- you only, uh, that person derives it. Ba- basically, when it's derivative, uh, the child gets it from the parent only. The parents cannot get derivative um, anything from the child born here in the United States. They have to wait until the child turns 21 so the child can petition for the parent um, to be a legal permanent resident. The parent does not get citizenship from the child.
0: Right. And when, they turn, when the child turns 21, the parent also doesn't become a U.S. citizen. Correct. There's a process, correct?
1: There is a process, and the, the child has to petition for their parent to become a legal permanent resident. They don't automatically become citizens, or they do not automatically become legal permanent residents. There is a process.
0: So that process, is it the same, the I-130
1: petition? It is the same. It is a family petition. Of course, it's, a, it's, not, um, it's not husband and wife uh, status, but it is a, a, a child to parent. And it is an I-130, and um, it, it does um, go in conjunction with an I-485 when you do want to adjust status, if the parent does qualify, if, if the parent qualifies to be able to adjust status here in the United States.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's super important. Let me, let's switch gears really quick a little bit. What if the person is um, not a the let's say I'm an intending immigrant and I'm married to a legal permanent resident and not a US citizen? Would I still be able to adjust my status in the United States?
1: Well, this is this is one of those um really Tricky situations that um, you have to be very careful because you cannot be out of status. So Mm. uh, so a legal permanent resident petitioning for the wife normally under normal circumstances, you would do it. It would be consular processing because there it is a situation where you have to be very careful. Um, that the legal, that the person is not, the intending immigrant is not, was never out of status. And, um, and obviously you also have to wait for that visa to become available. So, um, if there ever was a situation where somebody can adjust status here in the United States, it would be when the visa was available and, um, the intending immigrant was never out of status. Right. So
0: it would be where maybe, um, let's say I'm the intending immigrant, but I entered, let's say, with some sort of like H-1B or L visa, an employment-based visa. And I stayed in that status and um, my LPR spouse petitioned for me and then the visa became available and then we could adjust status. Is that, is that how the scenario works?
1: Exactly. That is one of the perfect scenarios where that person intending immigrant was never out of status in any way. And um, and then the visa became available. And of course, right now we're noticing that the availability of the of the visas with the spouse of a legal permanent residence, they have been current a lot. Uh, so that's yeah. that's another that's another one of the of the issues where it has been done. But you have to be very careful where also the person enters as a tourist visa and they had a, a 994 for six months, uh, yeah. and that, that never expired, and then the, and then the, the, the um, visa became available because it was current, then that's a possibility, but it is, it is very, you have to be very cautious with that avenue.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned the visa bulletin. Can you give us, I guess, just a brief description or what is the visa bulletin?
1: Yeah. So the visa bulletin, whenever somebody is not considered an immediate relative of a family member that um, they are uh, petitioning for them. Uh, for example, uh, an immediate relative is a husband and a wife um, and a mother father of a U.S. citizen or a um, of, of a U.S. citizen that is actually a child that is 20, turns 21. Um, and. Um, I believe that's it, right? Rosemary missing. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I yeah, that's pretty much it. it. So parent yeah.
0: parent child parent child uh, child needs to be over 21. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's the immediate mm-hmm. relative. So anybody else that is doesn't fit that would be uh, they'd have to be they'd have to look at the visa bulletin. Exactly.
1: So you have to look at the visa bulletin to see where in the visa, because there are there are categories. You would have to look at the category you're in, which would be, uh, for example, if you're um, um, a a child, well, not a child and actually an adult, that's already over 21 and you have a U.S. citizen uh, parent and you're not married, then you would be in the first category. And then it would depend on the country that you are from and you were born. So then you would look under, for example, you're from Mexico, you will look under Mexico in the category. Um, that you're in, and then you would see in in which um, month um, day and year um, immigration is processing those applications that were submitted during that time yeah
0: and some of and basically this is this is the wait time the the line so called that people could enter and not it's not inclusive of many people right you're it's inclusive of yeah. legal permanent residents spouses and children under twenty one uh s- children over twenty one of legal permanent residents who are not married um married uh children of u s citizens And unmarried children of U.S. citizens over 21, and then brothers and sisters of U.S. citizens. Exactly. And that is it. That is it. Those are your categories. There are no other categories.
1: Correct. Yes, those are the categories. And then you would have to look at them them to see where they're at, to see um, how long you would take to be able to approximately how long um, you would take and where they're at in the process of being able to um process those applications that were submitted at that time in that category.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I for me when I look up the visa bulletin I usually just google visa bulletin cuz it's I think it's put out by the state department and so it's easier for me just to google it. Is is that kind of how you look up the visa bulletin?
1: I do and I just put the month that we're in. So I put Visa Bulletin uh-huh. in October 2021. Yeah. And, uh, and that yeah. way it gives me the last, the latest one.
0: Yeah, if that's awesome. So one, Yes. Yeah. So definitely anybody who is thinking about doing this process should definitely contact an immigration attorney, especially if they're... At any point, even if they're married to a U.S. citizen, but especially if there's an inadmissibility issue, if there's a crime, if there's, or mm-hmm. if they're married to a U- a legal permanent resident, I I would say they definitely need to hire or at least consult with uh, an immigration attorney.
1: I agree. I I think um, over the years, I do also believe that over the years it has gotten more complicated, and it has um, it has become. One of those areas where it's not just filling out forms, it's analyzing the legal aspects of an adjustment of status uh, with a family petition. It is, it is crucial. I do believe that that you hire or you at least contact the lawyer to ask about your case.
0: Yeah, definitely. Cause you know, I, and I'm sure this is your, the case with you too. I see so many people who actually don't qualify to adjust their status in the United States, but then they've done it themselves. And so they end up in uh, what's called removal proceedings.
1: Yes. I, it, it is really sad sometimes when I see that because um, they, didn't, they didn't have to go through that. Um, and there are right. a lot of issues. And I know that this is one of the areas where I know um, it's, it's complicated and it has a lot of uh, things to consider but for example when people were deported before they were removed yeah so then we we started to a lot of people um don't understand what being removed was or being just by being sent back uh even yeah. um you always we always have to consider whether that person's removal is, is uh, also something else. And I see that he, uh, down here in the Valley a lot. That's why I'm mentioning that, where a lot of times people don't qualify um, for adjustment, um, even if they entered legally the last time, or even if they had an, um, a 245i issue where people would, um, somebody applied for them before April 30th, 2001. If they had uh, deportations in the past, they will not be able to qualify. So I see that issue down here and it's very sad. Uh, And that's one of the situations where I always um, tell them, you know, you just want somebody to be honest with you. You want somebody to tell you there is this issue. It's very serious because once you get to the appointment with immigration, they're going to tell you you don't.
0: Right. And it's so sad. Well, Stella, that's all we have for today. I want to thank you again for being with us. And um, I hope you have a good day. Thank
1: you. Thank you for having me, Rosemary. This was great and so much fun.
0: Thank you for listening to Unite Immigrant Families. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want more information about me or my guest, please email me at uniteimmigrantfamilies at gmail.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. I hope you join us on this bi-weekly podcast. No legal advice was provided, and none will ever be provided on this
1: podcast.